Well, if you will, remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn me to Romans chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 945. Romans chapter 9. And so if you're here week by week, just be, be ready. This is just the introduction. So we will cover Romans 9, verses 1 through 5 this week. So Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So it's by God's grace we have covered Romans, the first eight chapters over the last nine months. We have discussed in detail how individuals are made righteous before God, as well as how God works in and through his children. That the Lord's children stand before him justified, they stand by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That anything added to that is sin. It's not Jesus plus something, it is Jesus Christ alone. Romans 8 is considered by many to be the greatest chapter in all the Bible, beginning with no condemnation and ending with no separation. We discussed the five-link golden chain of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And this chapter is a, it's a major encouragement for us concerning salvation as God's children. The truth that the gospel does not just save, the gospel brings us all the way home. And if we are a Christian, we cherish that, we hold on to it, we love that truth. That we're not just saved in the here and the now. That the gospel brings us all the way home. That what God has started in us by his grace, he will finish by his grace. And we will one day be in his forever eternal kingdom with our eyes have been turned to sight and we see Christ ourselves. Romans 8 is so very precious while chapters 9 through 11 are often ignored and skipped. Romans 9 is answering one overarching question. One question that those in Rome needed answered, and one question that we must answer ourselves. If God is a promise keeper, if he is a promise keeper, if he is sovereign over all things, what about Israel? What about Israel? Has the word of God failed? Because Israel as a whole has rejected Jesus Christ. Chapter 9 is the beginning of the Apostle Paul answering this important question. And as he does, he discusses the doctrine of election 
or unconditional election. The doctrine of election is often shamefully pushed aside, but once rightly understood by God's grace, as you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you see it on every page, and you cherish it. The 1689 put it this way, It's God's appointed and acceptable time. He is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He says he calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and he gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by His almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Christ. Yet He does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by His grace. This effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in those called. Neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So God does not see anything good in us, nor does he elect based upon what he sees us doing in the future. Election is based upon God alone and his sovereign choice. We are passive in our salvation. So before we begin looking at verse 1, there are six things I want to cover. Um, Six things in which I think are necessary for us to think about in moving our hearts and our minds upon God's Word this morning. Number one, if you've never studied Romans 9 through 11 in context with the rest of the epistle, it is required of you as a Christian to do so. These chapters are important in understanding who God is and how God works. We must study this. Number two, we must allow the Bible to speak and we have to get out of the way. We are not allowed to redefine words to fit our perception of who God is. If we redefine words and we create a God who does not exist, we are committing idolatry. We don't do that. Number three, if you have never struggled with these verses and chapters, you have never studied them. I don't know how else to say it. You will struggle you will fight, you will get upset, you will close your Bible. It happens. We need to wrestle with these verses. As some preachers say, I just skip over the hard stuff. No. As a Christian, we are not allowed to skip over the hard stuff. You need the hard stuff to understand who God is and who we are. Stay in it. Wrestle. We need to look at all things from God's perspective and not man's. We don't start with us and climb a ladder to heaven. We start with God and we work our way down to creation. That is the proper understanding. Number four, 
Romans chapter 9 ends the free will debate. It ends it. You are in bondage to sin or spiritually free in Christ. And concerning free will, you are free to do what God allows you to do. Period. The end. If God is sovereign over all things, then you are free to do what God allows you to do. There is not a millimeter in which the Lord is not sovereign over. This is our great God who is three in one. Our great God is supreme over all things, including salvation. The Lord, Yahweh, He is over all. As I was preparing to begin chapter 9 this week, I was reminded of the words of John Piper. As John Piper was wrestling year for a solid year with these verses, he approached his professor in the hallway, and he was angry and he was mad, and he had his list of questions that he brought before his professor. And one of the things that he did is he grabbed a pencil, and he came before his professor, and he dropped it, and he said, I did it! I did that. And later on, he went to his room, and he wept like a child. And he wrote these words down. Romans 9 is like a tiger devouring free willers like me. This is why it is so important as God's children that we know what we believe and why we believe what we believe. Because if what we believe does not line up with God's word, we believe wrongly. Number five, the sovereignty of God is never to be used as an excuse to ignore the commands of God. Specifically within our commands as God's children, we are to share the gospel. To think that God's sovereignty lets us off the hook is completely absurd. Paul himself was an evangelist, and if I can say so, a much better one than you and me. To think that God's sovereignty lets us off the hook is absurd. God's sovereignty encourages and spurs on our evangelism, in my opinion. For the Lord will save or condemn whom he wills. We are the vessels. We don't know who will be saved, while God knows whom he will save, because he predestined them and died for them. We must serve him as his children in obedience to his commands and share the gospel. If you're on the spectrum that God is sovereign, I don't have to pray. God is sovereign. I don't have to go out and share the gospel. God is sovereign. He's going to save whom he wills. You're wrong. That's not the God of the Bible. He is sovereign over all things. And you have a command as God's child to go and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, just have children and do with them what you will. Have neighbors and don't talk to them about Jesus. We must see the disobedience in that. Number six, I ask for prayer for Blake and I as we study, prepare, and preach. We want to do all with humility, but also complete honesty. We know that not all of you are going to walk away believing as we believe, but we do hope that you will study Romans, study the surrounding context, study these verses, and wrestle with what God has said. Remember, as we walk through Romans, we said this to you. 
If you think that you're going to get all out of Romans just from sermons from Blake and I, you're mistaken. Pray for boldness for us, as well as humble ears for you. I'll give you a prime example. You might disagree with something I'm going to say. Immediately after the service, don't come up to me and start arguing with me. Why don't you take the 15 to 30 hours that I did in preparation and study, you go home and you wrestle with the text and you spend time in prayer. It's a perfect example. You wrestle with the text. Both Blake and I have wrestled with the text. We desire to tell you what these verses teach, and we are to believe what God's Word teaches. More could be said, but let's get started. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. So some people think Romans 9, verse 1, Paul, it seems like he's going off on a trail here. He's really not. Look what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So context, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is confident that nothing can separate God's children from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That was the end of Romans 8. But notice this. He also said, not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not, nor powers, the present or the future, the God of the Bible and the God of all creation, He is sovereign over all things, that if you are saved, you are always saved. But notice, God's sovereignty doesn't change Paul's grief. Paul the Apostle is an evangelist. God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He himself is grieved over the truth that the majority of the Jews are lost. He's got God's sovereignty in one hand, but he's also got his own grief in the other. He is speaking the truth. He is not lying. Why did Paul say this? He was calling God as his witness, saying, This is true in my heart. I am not lying. I am grieved. Because if you were a Jew and you were hearing some of the things that Paul said, you would say, You don't love the Jews. Paul's saying, No, it's true. It's in my heart. I love the Jews. I am not lying. I am grieved. I long for them to be saved. Paul wanted those in Rome to know that although God is sovereign over salvation, he still had great sorrow in his heart for his lost kinsmen. And Paul's conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that he had great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart for his brothers and sisters in the flesh. He had unceasing grief. Unceasing grief for lost souls. He wanted the Jews to be found in Christ. Yes, Paul carried the gospel to the Gentiles, but oh, he wanted his fellow Jews to be saved. I thought about David and Amy as I was preparing this this past week. That's missionaries. 
ministries, they love the people they've been called to go to, and they go, but oh, how they want those back home saved. And if you follow David at all on Facebook, you can see how grieved he is for the United States. That he sees what they are going after. He sees what they are pursuing. He sees, and that hurts him, but he longs for the gospel to be advanced. That's Paul. His grief was inward. Inward pain. Inward sadness. It was continual. It was unceasing. As Paul continually prayed for the church in Rome, he also continually had grief in his heart for the salvation of the Jews. Paul's love that he had for his countrymen should be the same love that we have for those around us. This should be the same love that we have for our family, for all those in our family. This should be the same love that we have for those in this church to see everyone come to saving faith, to see the children being raised in godly homes and they repent and they believe in Christ alone for their salvation. This should be the same love that we have for our neighbors. That if we know that God is sovereign over all and something happens and we're out in the street talking with our neighbors, we should be thinking about Christ and praying for their salvation. This past week, I was confronted with personal sin in my life that even thinking within this, may the Lord be gracious to us in the revealing of our sins that cover up our love for lost souls. That we can have so much sin in our life that it covers the fact that, yes, I love the Lord, but I don't love the lost around me. May the Lord grant us the same love for the lost as Paul the Apostle had for the Jews. As if verse 1 and 2 was not enough, look at verse 3. Paul said, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul's love for the Jews extended to the point that he wished himself accursed and cut off from Christ if only his fellow Jews were saved. If he could trade places with him, he he would, but it was impossible. This is why he said, for I could wish. Paul used words just like Moses did in the Old Testament. When Moses came down the mountain, after meeting with God, holding the two tablets in his hands with the Ten Commandments written on them, the, the people became extremely impatient and waiting for him. And as their impatience grew, they made a golden calf to worship. Moses threw down the tablets in anger as he saw the golden calf being worshipped. And then we find these words in Exodus 32. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, 
Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, but now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Moses had a great love for the people, the Israelites. He said, Lord, if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written so that they may be saved. Paul had a great love for his people. He says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters. Paul had a great love for the Jews. Paul's use of the word accursed here is the word anathema in the Greek. It means to be devoted to hell, to be devoted to destruction. In our language, Paul is saying, I could wish that I myself were damned and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Paul was so grieved that if he could be devoted to destruction under the curse of God for the sake of the salvation of his kinsmen, he would. What a great love that he had for his fellow Jews. So, as I have asked myself and been convicted of my sin this week, I want to ask you, whose salvation are you praying for? Who are you praying would repent of their sins and trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Who are you grieved for and longing to see them come to Christ? That's brought you to the point to where you have unceasing, unstoppable anguish in your soul that you just want them to be saved. But if you long for someone's salvation like that, and you're praying to the Lord for them, we as Christians should not only be praying, but we should be going to Him knowing He is the only one that can do it. He is the only one with the power to save. But we should also, with great urgency and compassion and love, share the good news of Christ with them and call them to repent and believe. We need our love for the Lord to increase as well as our love for the lost to know Him. We need to be so grieved like Paul that if we ourselves could be devoted to destruction under the curse of God for the sake of salvation of others, we would. Paul explains why he said what he said. Romans 9, verse 4. They are Israelites... To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In these verses, Paul lays out eight privileges of the Israelites. Eight privileges. So, for the remainder of the sermon, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. There's a reason why so many pastors ignore Romans 9, 10, and 11 because it goes to the Old Testament. They ignore the Old Testament as well. These eight privileges, adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promise, 
patriarchs in Christ. And it's also important to note, Paul uses the present tense here, not past tense. He says, they are Israelites to them, not belonged, to them belong. So let's look at these privileges together. Number one, adoption. Israel is called God's son in the Old Testament. Exodus 4, verse 22. Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. Deuteronomy 1, verse 31. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how Yahweh your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. As we have seen already in Romans chapter 2, Christ came for the Jew first and then for the Greek. The Jews were God's chosen people. Number two, we see glory. God's divine and visible glory. Exodus 29, 42-45 It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before Yahweh, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. There's something special here about Israel. Second Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of Yahweh because the glory of Yahweh filled the Yahweh's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of Yahweh on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to Yahweh, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. There's no Gentiles here. This is, this is Israel. God has given Israel the privilege of His glory, that God's glory dwelled among Israel. What a great privilege. To Israel was also given in number three, the covenants. That God's promise to Abraham, to Moses, to David. This was God's divine initiative. It was not a mental agreement between God and man. God said, I will do this. So you have Abraham out of Genesis 12. Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And what did God say? And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And why did the Lord do this? He did it for himself. And it was God himself doing it. So you have Abraham, and then you also have Moses, Deuteronomy 18. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Moses brought the Lord's people out, and they worshipped the Lord, and the Lord was their God. So we have Abraham, we have Moses, and we have David. 2 Samuel 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, 
I love hearing that about David. Where was David? Oh, he's in the pasture. Following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Later on, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He said, remember... And speaking to the Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the covenants of promise were a privilege for Israelites. Number four, the law. The law came through Moses to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Exodus 6, verse 7 should stick in our minds. You will be my people and I will be your God. Exodus 19, we find these words. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day that they came to the wilderness at Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. It was Moses. And Yahweh called out to him of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. So the law was for the people of Israel. Number five, we have the worship. And we're reminded of the worship every time we take of the Lord's table. Reminded of the sacrifice year after year after year of the priests coming into the temple, the shedding of the blood, the temple worship, the sacrifices for the atonement of God's people, the blood, the priests. This was not given to the Gentiles. It's given to the Jews. Exodus 29, there I will meet, I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will concentrate the tent of meeting on the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will 
consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. They shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. Hebrews 9 goes into this detail of what it looked like. Even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, you had the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the worship was given to the Jews. that There was rules set in place that you may go this far and you can no longer go this far. That you cannot go in. You cannot enter. This was given to the Jews. Then you have the promises. God's promises were for the Jews first and later by God's grace to the Gentiles. You have Old Testament promises that were fulfilled. The promise of a Messiah coming, reaching back all the way to Genesis 3, verse 15, a promise of an eternal kingdom, Christ crushing the head of the serpent. Isaiah 52, you have the suffering servant. Psalm 22, you have the death of Christ. Micah 5, verse 2, Christ coming from Bethlehem. These promises were not given to Gentiles. These promises were given to Israel. In number 7, you have the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were given to Israel. If you flip forward a few chapters in Romans 11, to Romans 11, verse 25, it describes the fathers to whom the promise was given. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So these fathers were given to Israel and they laid the foundation for the coming of Christ. And then number eight, the biggest one of all, the Christ. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, he was a Jewish man. The Jews were no doubt a special people with great and undeserved privileges. The greatest being Jesus Christ, a Jew. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So these eight privileges were major for the Jews, but they did not save. When Jesus came, Many Jews stumbled over Jesus because of who he said he was and what the Jews needed. They thought they were saved because of their privileges. Look at Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? And I know I'm jumping to the end here. 
The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Anytime you have a question in Scripture, it's always good that that question's there. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have stumbled over Christ. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the Jews as a whole did not base their salvation upon faith, but upon God's law, as if salvation was based upon works. And if you don't make this connection, please, please make this connection. It hasn't stopped. We have millions and millions of souls today who are trying to earn their salvation through being good. You cannot be good. It is impossible for you to be good. Your good will never outweigh your bad. That's why the law was always pointing to Christ. The Jews did not pursue salvation by faith. Paul Later on, discusses this in more detail in Romans 10, beginning in verse 1. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You see, everything Paul was saying, Jews would have become angry at and upset about. Paul, I can't say, I can't really believe that you actually believe that. I mean, you yourself are Jew. You know the great privileges that we have. And now you're saying that we're not saved. You're saying salvation is by faith alone. And that's why he had to preface by saying, look, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the Jews, as a whole, they sought salvation through the law, when in reality, it was the law of God that was pointing to their great need of a Savior, that Savior being Jesus Christ. Bodhi Bauckham put it this way, it's not that the Old Testament is gone away, it's that when you get to the New Testament, the temple is still there. What happened is, Christ came along, he walked through the temple, he flipped the light on and says, now you can see, because I have arrived. God's righteousness is not the law. God's righteousness is not your good good works. God's righteousness is Jesus Christ alone. Theology matters. And many times today, we hear over and over and over again, no, it doesn't. But in Romans 10... Paul himself said, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's not divine. It's not what God has breathed. That you have a zeal for God, that's great. You can have a zeal for God and still go to hell. If it's not the God of the Scriptures, what we believe about God is truly the most important thing about us. If we are to have zeal for God, it must be according to His Word. That's why we hold up and we're Protestants and we say sola scriptura. 
It's not what the Pope thinks. It's not what tradition thinks. It's not what the church says. It's Scripture alone. And then we look at through Scripture alone, we talk about history and what the church has believed all throughout history. And we, when we go back to this, if it's not in here, we don't believe it. If we are to have zeal for God, it must be according to His Word. A passion for an unbiblical God ends with the final destruction of hell, no matter how much passion you have. We can be religious and passionate about a God that does not exist. Theology matters. Doctrine matters. A watered-down theology, a watered-down theology, it might fill the buildings on earth, but the result is a larger population in hell. Our goal is to please the Lord in all things. Our goal is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't water anything down. We don't come before them with our man-made ideas. We come before them with, thus saith the Lord. That God's sent righteousness for men is only Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Romans 9, verse 5. Did you notice the wording that Paul uses at the end of verse 5? He says, Is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Jesus Christ is a Jew, but He is also God. This is too important, so important for us to grasp in our theology. Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is preeminent. He has always existed. He is the Christ who is God over all. That the Son of God came to this earth, and when He did, He put on flesh. It had to be this way. He had to come. He had to put on flesh. He had to die because there was no sacrifice that could be had in which would atone for the sins of His chosen, the elect. Jesus Christ is God over all, and He is blessed forever. The majority of Israel did not believe this. The majority of religions today, they do not believe this. Salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is by your works. Even in talking with many people in Protestant churches, when you ask to hear their salvation story, they usually don't begin with God's grace. They usually begin with, I was baptized on this and this day. Baptism doesn't save you. Church attendance does not save you. Christ alone saves you by His grace. Paul, he longed, he had unceasing anguish in his soul for his own people to be saved. This brought him to great paramounts of grief. The Jews, and, and they had all the privileges. He knew all the privileges well. Because Paul himself thought to be saved, but he wasn't. The Jews, they're in the same boat still. They haven't gotten out of the boat. They themselves think to be saved. But they were in fact lost. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. So has God's word failed? Is Israel proof of God failing. The Word of God has not failed, Christian. If God has failed, let's close this book and let's get out of here and sell the building. We will see more of this answer as Paul unravels 
chapter 9 so beautifully in the weeks to come that God is sovereign over all, Israel included. And we better be thankful, as I think all of us are probably Gentiles in this room, that God has allowed a way for us to be saved. Because we don't deserve it. We can trust God and we can be sure that God is going to keep all of his promises. They are all yes and they are all amen. Both chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Romans should encourage us and comfort us. Our God is not in the heavens thinking and wondering, I wonder how this is all going to end. He is governing all that happens from every tree to every squirrel to every human to every accident that we perceive with our eyes to every hard and detail that happens to every death to every phone call that we had no idea. God is in it all. He is Lord over all. We can have assurance, we can have confidence, and we can have joy in the truth that God's word has not failed. He has not failed. You can trust him. The reason that's, and please listen to this, the reason that so many people think God has failed is because they've never taken the time to study him. If you're in church and you think God has failed in some sort of way, in some sort of fashion, it, it, the reason probably that you ignore your Bible is because you think he has failed you. Dear saint, this life is not about you. It is a joyful thing to know that whatever I do, God is sovereignly ruling over it all. All of his promises, not the majority, not partial, all, they are yes and amen. But look at it from Paul's perspective too. Paul had amazing theology. God's sovereignty did not change Paul's grief. And it should not change ours. He had unceasing anguish in his heart. And he brings that to bear before the people in Rome saying, I am calling on the Holy Spirit as my witness to tell you I am broken over the fact that these Jews are not saved. God's sovereignty did not change Paul's grief and it should never, ever change ours. So we hold on to the promises of God of who he is, what he says he's going to do. We cherish those things. We grieve the lost and we pray and we preach the gospel. We pray that others would come to faith in Christ because our power can do nothing. It has to be the power of God. And we declare without apology, that the gospel, that salvation cannot be done by work unless you're saying the work is Christ. But salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because of the God of the Bible, the one who has created everything, he is Lord over all. Father, we thank you for your word. I confess to you, I haven't cherished it as much as I should. That all my doubts, all my concerns, all my, all my struggles, they can be washed away by what you have breathed out 
That is, that when you adopted me by your grace and brought me before you, it's if a child is coming and sitting before his father and you have spoken and you have preserved that for me to know all that you have said from generation to generation to generation. That your Holy Spirit has been leading lost souls to Christ. That your Holy Spirit has been leading the saved to know who you are. As Hebrew says, there is a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And as the body, Lord, as, as we are looking to you in Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11, as we are running this race of faith together, Lord, we're going to get upset. We're going to struggle with some things. We're going to have hardships, Father. We might even become angry, Lord. I pray that we as brothers and sisters would pick each other up, push each other forward, and say we must look to the Word to know what we believe. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, we know that salvation is by your son, Jesus Christ, alone. Lord, but we come before you as Paul was earnestly broken over the lost souls of his Israelites. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would get to the point that we're broken over the lost souls around us and that we would do something about it, not only in prayer, but also in obedience and sharing the good news of Christ. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would draw the lost in this room to you. Convict them of their sin. Lord, forgive us and be patient with us as by your grace, as you uncover all the sins in our life that are hiding you the sins that are causing us not to worship you and not to love our neighbor. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for using a fool like me. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.